0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host with me this week is my wife, Carol. Say hello, Carol.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: It's going pretty good 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 the views information and opinions expressed during the dark poutine podcast are
1: solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of curious cast its affiliate global news nor their parent company chorus entertainment
0: dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing we're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Animo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine.
1: Oh, what a relief it is.
0: Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the U.S. or U.K., text 741-741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. In New Brunswick in the fall of 1922, a convicted double murderer named Benny Swim was hanged for the murder of the woman he loved, his first cousin Olive, and her husband Harvey Trenholm. Benny didn't die the first time, so he was quickly hanged again.
1: Oh, no.
0: You are listening to episode 163, Twice Hanged, The Life and Crimes of Benny Swim.
1: Poor Benny, but maybe not. We'll find out.
0: Well... And he did kill a couple of people, Carol, so...
1: That's true. Sorry, I I retract that.
0: (laughs) Canada has had quite a history with capital punishment, with hanging being the go-to method used to dispatch someone sentenced to die. On July 14, 1976, the Canadian House of Commons passed Bill C-84 on a free vote, abolishing capital punishment from the Canadian Criminal Code and replacing it with mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years for all first-degree murders. The death penalty was removed from the Criminal Code in 76, and Canada totally abolished capital punishment in
1: 1998. Yeah, 1998. My gosh. This year we got married. They're still doing it?
0: Yeah, well, they weren't doing it. It was still on the books. Wow. Wow. Before Confederation from 1860 to 1866, 40 people, including one woman, were hanged in Canada. After Confederation in 1867, for the next 95 years until Ronald Turpin and Arthur Lucas were hanged at Toronto's Don Jail on December 11th, 1962, 1,533 death sentences were passed between 1867 and 1976. This resulted in the executions of 691 men and 11 women. From 1869, only murder, rape, and treason were punishable by death.
1: The story goes my great-grandma used to go to watch the hangings there.
0: Mm, In Coleman. Mm -hmm. Only two men were ever put to death for treason in Canada. One of them was Louis Riel. In eighteen eighty five, a man whose story we'll cover one day, and the other was Thomas Scott, an Irish Protestant who was hanged on the fourth of March 1870 in Red River in present-day Manitoba. There'd already been seven hangings in Canada in nineteen twenty-two, the year this story takes place, which seemed about average over the years that Canada had the death penalty. The other Canadians hanged before Benny swim that year had killed during robberies, in the heat of passion, and one had raped and murdered an eight-year-old boy, Philip Goldberg, in Toronto. William Frederick Swim and Eva May Foster were married on October 8, 1899 by Reverend H.J. Shaw on the advice of Eva's brother, Jesse Herbert Foster. 24-year-old Eva was almost nine months pregnant at the time, just two weeks shy of giving birth to their first child. For some unknown reason, William lied about his age and occupation on the marriage certificate, stating he was only 30 years old and was a farmer, but in reality, he was a 42-year-old labourer. The Swims made their home in the poor, borderline farmland of the forest on the east side of the St. John River, north of Woodstock. Their son, Benny Swim, was born in the family's tiny one-room shack on October 22, 1899, in the small community of Brighton in Carleton County in New Brunswick. As times were tough and William and Eva had a hard time making ends meet, it was four more years before Benny's sister Cassie came along, and a year after that, his little brother Alexander was born. From Ed Butt's book, Rum, Blood, and Treasure, quote, Benny grew up in a part of Carleton County, New Brunswick, that was often called the Badlands. It was a mixture of forest and hard scrabble farms where people lived on the margins of society. Men put meat on the table by hunting, often with little regard for game laws. They earned hard cash by making moonshine in secret stills and selling it for as little as two dollars a gallon. Poverty, overproof liquor, and a proliferation of firearms resulted in a high rate of violent crime. Quarrels and domestic disputes often ended in assault and even murder. Among the poorly educated, underemployed, clannish Backwoods families, there was a deep mistrust of police and other authority figures and outsiders in general. Benny caused nothing but grief for Eva and William. He wasn't a good kid. Coming to the end of their tethers with the moody and difficult boy, Benny was sent away to live with his uncle, John Swim, who lived in the woods just outside of Rockland. Benny's Uncle John was a wilderness guide. He had a business-leading wealthier sportsmen into the brush that he knew so well so they could hunt large game like white-tailed deer, moose, and black bears.
1: Oh, they were sending people to outdoor school even back then.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Benny was sensitive and a target for bullying by the larger and hardier boys at school. When he was just 12, Benny came home steaming, sick of the taunting from an article published in the Toronto Star on Saturday, February 7th, 1981, by Frank Jones. Quote, How can I stop those kids at school from plaguing the life out of me? Benny asked his uncle. Rip their bloody guts out, said John Swim shortly.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Benny took John's suggestion to heart, and the next day the boy returned to school with a knife. When the bullies came for him again, Benny produced his blade and slashed at the other boys, missing with his strikes but sending them scampering away from him. Benny was pleased, having avenged himself. However, he never returned to school after that, instead going to work as a laborer.
1: Oh, all right. Watch out for little old (laughs) Jim.
0: Yeah, Yeah, Benny's going to take everything to heart. From Ed Butt's book, Rum, Blood, and Treasure, Benny eventually went to work in a pulp mill. He put in long hours for low pay doing one of the dreariest, most backbreaking, bad-smelling jobs in Canada. In a way, the mill seemed representative of Benny Swim's cheerless existence. So do you recall any stinky communities that you drove by when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, sometimes you can smell it when you drive over the Knight Street Bridge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that uh, stench.
0: Yeah. Yeah, everybody says that uh, you can smell Prince George before you see it kind <laughs> of thing. Poor Prince George. Yeah. There was one single thing that made Benny's crappy life worth living. That was his first cousin, Olive, John's daughter. Ed Butts described Olive in his book, Rum, Blood, and Treasure. He wrote, quote, Olive Swim was an early bloomer and soon realized that boys and men found her attractive. From age 12, she had a reputation as a flirt. She became the object of many a quarrel between jealous rivals, end quote.
1: Just gross. She's 12. Calm down.
0: Benny was just one of the men infatuated with Olive, who was six years younger than him. By the time she was 17, Olive, too, had taken notice of her shy and awkward older cousin Benny. Perhaps it was simply due to the fact that they lived in the same small cabin with Olive's father that the pair became lovers. Olive, though, was not faithful to Benny, and Benny did not react well when she gave attention to or or received attention from other men. According to an article on this case on AltonM.ca, contributed by Anne-Marie Beattie, quote, One fall, three sportsmen arrived to do some hunting and spent a night at Uncle John's cabin. On the first morning, the fragrant aroma of buckwheat pancakes and singular beauty of a young woman at the skillet greeted them. The young woman was dressed in a plain gingham dress beneath which her legs showed white as snow wrote Frank Jones from the Toronto Star on February 7th, 1981. Her jet black hair hung loose and accented the whiteness of her beautifully molded neck. There was plenty of fire in her dark brown eyes and her mouth was well shaped and her somewhat thick lips full and luscious as slightly overripe berries. This was Olive Swim, Uncle John's daughter. What's up, Carol? I know what you're going to say, but anyway, go ahead. I'll say it. Yeah.
1: She shouldn't have dressed like that. She shouldn't have had her lips like that. What is going on? It's like a romance novel.
0: Well, that's, yeah, that's essentially what they're trying to paint her as a pretty girl.
1: I don't think it's attractive. Pretty and in quotes as an innocent type situation. She's trying to entice them.
0: One of the hunters there that fall morning was British-born writer and naval officer William Guy Carr, who'd moved to Canada after the Great War. As well as penning books on military history, Carr wrote volumes on his conspiracy theories like Satan, Prince of This World, which according to Amazon, quote, It was edited by his elder son and is presented as the author's last manuscript exposing the Luciferian conspiracy, Satanist, secret societies, and the synagogue of Satan as driving forces behind the world revolutionary movement, end quote.
1: What just happened?
0: Exactly. Uh, just as an aside, I was not expecting to find such an interesting and bizarre character <laughs> as William Guy Carr in my research for this episode, and it was a pleasant surprise. I may just dedicate some more time to research him and his wild theories, and I'll link to his books in the show notes. But anyway. Wow. He was there. Okay. Uh, during this time. In his memoirs written years later, Carr recalled an incident involving Olive, Benny, and another of the hunters in his trio, a man named Roy. Roy was flirting with Olive throughout breakfast, and Olive was coyly reciprocating. Neither Olive nor Roy, noticed Benny, also seated at the table, seething with jealousy as the couple winked and giggled with each other. Okay. From Ed Butt's book, Rum, Blood, and Treasure, quote, After the meal, Carr and the other man headed into the woods, but Roy stayed behind. He said he would go into the forest at a different spot and drive deer toward them, end quote. Okay. Why are you making a face?
1: (laughs) I just know what's going to happen, so.
0: Roy and Olive left together, leaving Benny in the cabin. They told Benny that Roy was going to get some partridges for dinner that night and Olive was going to show the hunter where the best spots were. Mm -hmm. Benny stewed as he watched his gal leaving with another man. He suspected they were up to more than they'd let on. The couple hopped into Roy's car and headed down the road to a more secluded spot where they pulled over and began to make out.
1: This is bound to happen.
0: A rifle shot rang out, startling William Carr and his companion, so they ran toward the sound of the shot. They were thinking that they might find Roy in a downed deer. They were surprised to find Roy cowering in his car, Under the dashboard, covered in glass, Olive was outside the car, screaming at Benny, who was holding his twenty-two caliber rifle. It was smoking. A bullet, fired by Benny in a fit of jealousy, had passed through the windshield, nearly missing the couple. Oh, man. Roy was shaken up and Olive was angry, but the only thing hurt had been Benny's pride. This was the first time it was documented that Benny showed any kind of propensity for violence when his jealousy was aroused. Yeah. We've seen violence when he was slashing and trying to stab the other kids who were yep. bullying him. But this is the first time that there's a, a woman involved.
1: Yeah, he sought them out. He didn't just let it go.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. John Swim was not making it as a wilderness guide, so he decided to pack up and move to Benton where he planned to take up farming on a piece of land there. John later stated that he left Olive and Benny, quote, living together in his old hunting cabin as man and wife. The young couple struggled financially and they fought a lot. Yep. Benny and Olive soon moved in with Benny's parents. Benny scraped some money together and bought Olive a ring. He asked her to marry him in February of 1922. But Olive was tired of being poor, of living with Benny's parents, and of Benny's smothering attention. She couldn't think of any other way to escape him and saw the proposal as her opportunity to end things, turning Benny down flat and telling him she was leaving. It was over. Olive said she did not want to see Benny for a while.
1: Wow, 1922, that's a big risk for her. She's like not got a lot of options there. I mean, he's no great shakes, but still.
0: Yeah, well, she moved back in with her father, John, leaving Benny behind, feeling dejected at his parents' place. Benny left things alone for a couple of weeks, but he couldn't get Olive off his mind. He decided to head to Benton to try and convince Olive to come back to him. When Benny arrived at his uncle's place on March 13th, Olive refused to come to the door. John met Benny, telling the heartbroken young man that Olive was now in a relationship with another, more suitable, man. 38-year-old Harvey Dixon Trenholm, and they were going to be married in just two days. Okay. Well, this is only two weeks after.
1: Things were different then.
0: (laughs) It's not clear when the two had met, but sometime in the week since Olive and Benny had split, she and Harvey had gotten together and planned to marry. It was not unusual for things to move quickly in those days, as Carol mentioned, but this was really fast. Perhaps it was just another way for Olive to ensure her freedom from her jealous first cousin. Yeah, let's get this wrapped up. From the Toronto Star on February 7th, 1981. Quote, "Harvey was all the man that Benny wasn't, hard-working, reliable, physically attractive, and with the glamour of the scent of war still clinging to him. Olive, 17 and never more stunning, gave herself to him." End quote. Harvey Dixon Trenholm was born on the 15th of March, 1883 in Cape Tormentine in Westmoreland County, New Brunswick. Harvey was a fisherman before he enlisted as a private in the Canadian Expeditionary Force and was shipped off to Europe during World War I. Harvey had more than 20 years on his betrothed and far more experience in relationships, having been married twice before Olive Swim. In 1907, he'd married Bessie Gertrude Hayward, who gave birth to his daughter Gladys before they had divorced. He then married Dorina Rose Burgess on August thirtieth, nineteen sixteen, but they too had divorced.
1: Wow. Divorced twice. Yep. Well, I guess if he wanted it, I think back then it was the men's man's decision, really.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because Olive was born in nineteen oh four, and so Harvey's own daughter was only three years younger than his fiance. Yep. On Harvey's 39th birthday, he and Olive Swim were married in Meductic in York County, New Brunswick, by Reverend H. D. Worden. The couple could not afford a honeymoon. According to the Toronto Star, the couple, quote, went to live and work on a farm owned by a man named Sharp in Benton Ridge. The understanding was that Trenholm would buy the farm in a few weeks. So things were looking up. For yeah. Him. Not so great right now, but looking up.
1: But if he's going to buy the farm in a couple weeks.
0: Yeah. It's okay. Benny Swim, in the meantime, had returned home to his parents' place where he stewed and began to consider his next move. He was fuming and became consumed with dark thoughts about Olive and Harvey.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine.
0: And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. So what are your thoughts so far, Carol?
1: I feel like Olive had to do what she needed to do. It sounded like a good fresh start for her.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, Benny, just stay home,
0: please. Yeah, just stay home, Benny. Don't do what we know you're going to do. Yep. By March 27, 1922, Benny Swim had made up his mind about how to solve his dilemma. He sold his overcoat and traded his hunting rifle for a revolver. The firearm had a broken spring, meaning it would not advance automatically after being fired and recaught. The user had to manually rotate the cylinder, hoping the firing pin would line up with the next live bullet, but as the alignment was sometimes off, the weapon might misfire. To fire the gun more than once took a certain amount of will and persistence. Benny hopped the train to Woodstock. From there, he started the 27-kilometer hike to South Benton, where Harvey and Olive were living. From the Toronto Star on February 7, 1981, quote, at one point, Alfred Ball, driving along with his team, gave him a lift. Quote, "'A young fella took my wife and I'm gonna look into it,' Benny told Ball. Farther along, Benny called on Mrs. Jessie Kirk to ask the way to the Sharp Farm and couldn't help telling her the reason for his journey. "'I want to have them both arrested. It ain't right what they did,' he said. "'They are married. Don't meddle with them,' Mrs. Kirk advised. "'All they can do is kill me anyway,' he said half to himself." What might your name be, she asked curiously. Benny Swim, he said, and walked on toward the Sharp Place. Oh,
1: Mrs. (laughs) Kirkwood. Why? She could have known what was happening. Probably wouldn't expect that, but still.
0: Benny arrived at the farm in the late afternoon, and as the sun was going down, the killer made his move. Harvey and Olive were alone on the farm. Sharp, the owner of the property, had gone into town to run some errands so he wasn't around benny found harvey chopping wood outside olive was inside doing housework benny crept up behind harvey and startled the older man who turned to see only the barrel of benny's revolver just before benny pulled the trigger and shot harvey right in the face harvey died instantly dropping like a sack of potatoes into the small pile of chopped wood the sound of the shot brought olive The sound of the shot brought Olive to the back door and Benny met her there, pistol in hand. Benny grabbed Olive by the collar of her dress and begged her to come with him. Olive refused and screamed, trying to get away from Benny. Mm. Benny knew that Olive was lost to him. There was only one way in Benny's mind to resolve things. Olive had to die. Because, as the old cliche goes, if he couldn't have her, then no one would. Olive's dress ripped as Benny pulled her closer, pressing the barrel of his revolver between the girl's breasts before firing once. Olive was knocked backward by the gunshot. Still alive, somehow, she managed to tear away from Benny's grip and fled back inside. Benny stalked after Olive, who was running through the house to get away. Oh. The killer caught up with the girl in the living room and shot her once through the back and into her heart. The 17-year-old newlywed died right there on the floor. Benny later claimed that he could not look at Olive after he'd shot her. He said that he was sobbing as he grabbed a pencil and wrote a note on a notepad at the kitchen table. The note read, quote, goodbye Olive Swim and sleep, end quote. Wow. Wow. Then he walked outside past Harvey Trenholm's corpse and into the sheep pen behind the farmhouse. Then he had decided now that he had killed Olive and Harvey, he had nothing left to live for. He put the barrel of his revolver to his temple, took a few deep breaths to muster up his courage, and pulled the trigger. The gun went off. The shot had knocked him over. He was bleeding like a stuck pig, but he was still alive. The small caliber bullet had not gone through Benny's hard skull, instead ricocheting under his skin, moving around the shape of his head and coming to rest as a hard lump that Benny could feel with his fingers just above his right eye. Oh, no! Realizing that he'd failed to kill himself, Benny checked his ammunition in his pistol and found there was a single round remaining. Benny raised the pistol again, put it to his head one more time. He tried to convince himself to pull the trigger a second time, but he just couldn't manage. Frustrated and cursing himself as a coward, Benny threw the revolver aside and ran off. Sharp discovered the bodies when he arrived back at the farm later that evening, raising the alarm. The next morning, Sheriff Albion Foster easily tracked Benny by way of the trail of blood, the killer's bleeding head wound left in the snow, in the fields and through the woods as he stumbled away from the crime scene. The trail of blood led to the home of a farmer, named Jay Doherty, 11 kilometers from where Olive and Harvey had been found dead. That's amazing. Benny had come pounding on the door in the middle of the night. Blood was streaming down his face, A cloth wrapped around his still-bleeding scalp wound, and he was begging for shelter. The good-hearted farmer had taken the sobbing young man in. Yeah,
1: he didn't know what happened.
0: Benny was found in an upstairs bedroom and surrendered without incident. As Sheriff Foster was clapping the handcuffs on Benny to lead him away, the young man said, Quote, Sheriff, this is awful. I suppose I will hang for it. The sheriff did not argue. In fact, he thought Benny Swim was probably right on the money with that prediction.
1: And he still had that bullet
0: in his head. In his head. And there's a, a photo of him that I'm going to use in our show cover that shows Benny oh. afterward. It's black and white and old, but. yeah. Benny was taken to the jail at Woodstock and charged with two counts of premeditated murder and held for trial. An article in the Carlton Sentinel in March of 1922 claimed that Benny Swim had said, I am willing to die for this girl. It was over 10 minutes after my arrival at the house. So he owned up to everything. Justice truly was swift in those days, and in April, over three days, Benny was tried for the murders of Olive and Henry Trenholm. After only an hour of deliberation, the jury came back with their findings. Benny Swim was found guilty of willful murder times two. Benny was sentenced to hang by the neck until dead. According to the transcript of The King versus Benny Swim found in the Library and Archives Canada, the Chief Justice, McCune, told Benny Swim that he should use the time he had before his execution to, quote, "'Call in the services of the clergyman of your faith "'and throw yourself unreservedly in his hands "'in order that you may, to some degree,' Prepare for the ordeal which awaits you and for the passage to that higher tribunal before which all of us must ultimately stand. End quote. Get ready. Yeah. Benny did not have to wait long before the sentence would be carried out. His execution date was set for July 15, 1922. But before that could happen, at the behest of his lawyer, Benny was sent for a mental evaluation at the provincial hospital. The young killer was declared insane by a doctor there on July 6th. Benny was given a reprieve contingent on another evaluation before September 15th, Benny's next planned execution date. Oh, wow. From Ed Butt's book, Rum, Blood and Treasure. Quote, Benny seemed resigned to his fate. He gave the jail guards no trouble. Then on July 24th, two fellow inmates, young men serving short sentences for petty crimes, told Sheriff Foster that Benny was planning to escape that very night. They said Benny had told them he had managed to remove an iron plate from part of his cell. He was going to use it to knock out the lone night guard, take his keys, and break out. He had an escape route through the woods mapped out in his head and knew of a secluded cabin where he could hide until he could make a run for the main border. Foster thought the story sounded incredible, but decided he'd better investigate. It was night, and Benny should have been asleep on his cot wearing only his underwear. Instead, Foster found him fully dressed. His pockets were stuffed with food he'd been hoarding from his meals. A search of his cell turned up the iron plate. Foster rewarded the informants by recommended that their sentences be reduced. this time, Benny owed his hard luck to his inability to keep his mouth shut. Wow end quote very resourceful yeah, oh, he's supposed to be insane at the time too.
1: No, I don't think that's insane at that yeah.
0: At another hearing, it was determined that Benny's execution would go ahead. Surprise, surprise. But in a stroke of luck, Benny got another reprieve when Sheriff Foster came forward, telling the court that the hangman had broken his leg and could not perform his duties. (laughs) Although the gallows were ready and awaited Benny outside the Woodstock jail, there was no one to perform the task. Benny's execution was pushed to October 6 when a pair of executioners M.A. Doyle and F.G. Gill were able to come down east from Montreal. Benny had taken Chief Justice McKeown's advice and had been talking to a spiritual advisor, Reverend H.V. Bragdon. He baptized Benny on September 12, 1922 in the corridor outside his cell, according to Ed Butt's book. Both hangmen Doyle and Gill arrived in Woodstock several days before the day set for Benny Swim's execution. Gill stayed at the jail, and Doyle stayed at a hotel in Woodstock. On the evening before the execution, Doyle went to the jail, and both hangmen stayed there until after the execution the next morning. According to Ed Butts, Benny's last days included a nasty bout of tonsillitis. On the morning of October 6, 1922, Then he had his meager last meal in his cell, a few sips of tea and a grapefruit. Sad. Many of the details of the execution come from a later inquiry into the botched hanging held by Commission Royale d'enquête de Nouveau-Brunswick. Mais oui. At about five o'clock in the morning on October 6th, Sheriff Foster notified the persons who were assembled at the jail that the time had arrived for carrying out the execution. The hangman Doyle went to Swim's cell and placed the handcuffs on Benny, who was praying continuously. Swim then walked to the scaffold with Doyle and Gill on either side of him. He was wobbly and weak-kneed, as many would be. Deputy Sheriff Moores brought up the rear of the procession. Doyle, Gill, and Deputy Sheriff Moores went up to the scaffold with Benny. Doyle placed the customary black cap on Benny and arranged the noose about his neck. Benny Swim was about halfway through the Lord's Prayer when the hangman sprung the trap. After two or three minutes, the door of the pit was opened and Dr. Thomas W. Griffin, the jail physician, Drs. L. D. E. C. McIntosh and N. P. Grant, who had been requested by the sheriff to be present, and a visiting doctor entered the pit. So lots of doctors there. Yeah. Doyle, Gill, Deputy Sheriff Moores, and some others also went into the pit. Swim's body was hanging suspended by the rope with the feet about a foot from the ground. Swim was unconscious. The doctors proceeded to examine the body. After they had made an examination, Gill cut the rope by which the body was suspended. Deputy Sheriff Moores supported the body in his arms as the rope was cut. This would be about two or three minutes after the doctors had entered the pit and between five and eight minutes after the trap had been sprung. The body was then carried out to the corridor of the jail and placed on a cot. It was there that Benny was examined again by the doctors. It was found that his neck had not been broken by the fall and that he was still breathing.
1: Oh my God.
0: Dr. McIntosh and Dr. Grant remained with Dr. Griffin for between 20 and 30 minutes after the body had been placed on this cot. During this time, the body was examined by the doctors from time to time, and their opinion is that the pulse was beating stronger and the breathing improving. It appeared that Benny did not want to go. Dr. Griffin remained there and continued to examine the body from time to time and came to the conclusion that Benny would probably live and that there was a chance of recovery. The doctor notified the sheriff of his decision and Benny's body was carried to the scaffold again by Deputy Sheriff Moores and the hangman Gill. The noose was placed about his neck again by Gill and the trap sprung. Okay. The neck was badly broken by the second fall. After about 19 minutes, the lifeless body was cut down and delivered to the relatives for burial. Between three quarters of an hour and one hour had elapsed between the first and second hanging. Thankfully, Benny Swim never regained consciousness from the time the trap was first sprung until his death.
1: Okay, then answered that question.
0: Word of the double hanging made its way around Canada and the eastern United States. An article in the Carbondale Leader on Saturday, October 7, 1922, read in part, Hangs twice for murders. Benny Swim alive after the first drop goes again to gallows. Woodstock, New Brunswick, October 7. Twice reprieved from hanging the second time because no hangman could be found, Benny Swim, convicted of killing two persons, was twice hanged when a second hangman was called after the first attempt had been bungled. End quote.
1: Time to go to the speakeasies.
0: Word spread locally about how awful Benny's last few moments had been, and many people showed up for his funeral.
1: I'm just surprised by that. I guess because of what happened, people showed up too.
0: They felt bad for him, but he was also a double murderer. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I know. It's hard to say why they really came, but...
0: Well, an article in the Woodstock local newspaper kind of expresses that. The article read, quote, It was very largely attended. There were 150 teams in the procession. Teams means horse teams. Oh, okay. The large number of people attending testified to the disgust of the community against hanging, a relic Mm -hmm. of the Dark Ages. Yeah. So it was people who were against the death penalty altogether. Only days after the hanging, an inquiry was held into allegations made against Doyle, the first hangman. One of the doctors present, Dr. Grant, claimed he was certain that Doyle was drunk at the time of Benny's execution. Oh, man. Other witnesses said that Doyle was coarse in his treatment of Benny before, during, and after the execution.
1: That's gross.
0: From the inquiry, the evidence of the doctors can leave no doubt in one's mind that life was nearly extinct at the time the rope was cut and that Swim would have died from strangulation within a few minutes if allowed to remain hanging. The question at once arises, under whose authority did Gill cut the rope? Dr. McIntosh states that while he was talking to Dr. Grant, he heard someone say, cut him down. The voice sounded like Doyle's. He turned around and Gill was cutting the rope. Others state that he heard Doyle make other statements such as, he's dead as a doornail about this time. Dr. Griffin states that he gave no order to cut the body down and none of the persons present heard such an order given by Dr. Griffin or any other person except Doyle. It appears that Doyle was very officious at this time and when it was necessary for the sheriff to request him to go to the jail. So he was being a control freak about this Doyle. The writer of the report came to the conclusion that it was on Doyle's order that the rope was cut One can readily understand how some incident or some remark overheard by him may have led him to the conclusion that the doctors agreed that Swim was dead. However, he should have obtained the definite instructions from Dr. Griffin, the physician in charge, before giving such an order. Mm -hmm. It was at the time determined that Doyle, intoxicated or not, had carried out his duties correctly other than that one oversight. Yeah. But it did spark another, larger investigation into how humane capital punishment was in Canada at the time. So there you go. That's it for this week's case. Twice hanged the life and crimes of Benny Swim.
1: I just want to know what happened to that bullet that was in his head.
0: I don't know if they would leave it there. I don't think they would. I think it Someone probably would have been to remove it. taken out because it would be cruel to, and he would die of lead poisoning yeah. before being executed. So it was probably removed by a doctor. That was a rough one for Benny
1: that was.
0: Yeah. Benny, yeah. Benny being a sympathetic character, the whole thing was how he had to go out. Yeah. Being hanged twice.
1: Yeah, I do. I know what he did was wrong and I felt bad for Olive and the guy that just kind of turned and around. Harvey, and yeah. But then still, Benny was, nobody deserves that.
0: No. And uh, yeah, that's, that's just one of those stories as to points to why uh, capital punishment isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I'm thinking if there people went to go watch people get hanged, they saw that happen to him.
0: Hangings weren't as public at that time. You could be an official or somebody like mm-hmm. that in nineteen twenty two, but it, they weren't uh in New Brunswick at least, it wasn't something that everybody could everybody attend. Could just come so and watch. it wasn't a big crowd just out there watching. There were certain people who were supposed to be there. Got it. Yeah.
1: To document it and
0: Exactly. So there you go. What do you think of that one, Carol?
1: I don't know why. Now, when I was a kid learning history, didn't really think about these things and these details. Now when you break it down, it's just like, I feel sad for everybody.
0: Yeah. Mm. It's not a fun thing.
1: No, it's not entertainment, like the kid, the bad and the ugly and all that stuff.
0: No, these it are all feels, human beings. Yeah. Everybody involved was a human being, including Benny. Yeah. Olive and Harvey were human beings. Poor Roy, who, you know... Almost get shot. Yep. You know, all of these people were affected by Benny in some way. I really find these stories fascinating. Yeah.
1: I know we have to study the history so we don't repeat it. Yeah, well, um...
0: (laughs) we're going to repeat it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it's time for us to move on to voicemails. It is time for the voicemails.
1: Voicemails? Voicemail. Voicemail.
0: Voicemail. Voicemail.
1: -voicemail.
0: Let's see if anybody gave us a call this week. All right. Here's our first one. It looks like it is coming from Manitoba.
1: Oh, Manitobes.
0: Manitobes.
1: Hey, guys. I was just listening to your most recent episode while I get ready for my university interview I live in Winnipeg and I applied to the U of M for the School of Music. So I'm super excited for that. Also really nervous and that's why I'm listening to you guys to just calm the nerves. So I hope you guys have a great week. Thanks for everything you do. Wish me luck and I hope you go shit in your hat tonight. Thank you. (laughs) Just tonight?
0: Well, (laughs) sure, why not?
1: (laughs) Okay, so first of all, What is your name? Second of all, what instrument do you play? Do you play an instrument? Or is she a singer? Are you a conductor? Are you a singer? What do you do? I want to know more.
0: Yeah, we want to know more about what you do.
1: Okay, I don't think, I thought we're not supposed to wish you luck. We're supposed to ask you to break a leg. Right. Okay, so break a leg.
0: Yeah, anything entertainment related, say break a leg.
1: Oh, I hope it went well.
0: I hope both legs are broken. (laughs) (laughs) well not really no
1: well what if she plays fiddle she can still fiddle
0: break a finger she
1: can't be a hangman but she's not going to university for hangman school
0: yeah oh well
1: okay i hope it went well can you call us back and tell us what what the results were (laughs) i need to know
0: carol's very curious i am
1: yeah i always like someone who does the music oh such devotion
0: all right let's listen to this one all right i'm ready Hey, what's up, Mike? i uh, listening to your podcast. i listened to you guys for a good year now. Um, hope all is well with the coronavirus. I know we're still going through it. Almost there. Uh, I just want to say thank you for making my drive very, 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 very easy. I drive about eight hours a day, and I listen to a few of you every single day. Um, so thanks for what you do. Go shitting your hat. Why? thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's then, always
1: good to be told to go shit in my hat it's
0: always good to be told to go <sighs> shit in a hat because our, our hats need uh definite <laughs> our shit.
1: hats are full
0: our hats are full of shit <laughs> yeah yeah our hats are definitely full of shit
1: i finished knitting a hat
0: did you fill it full of shit after you not yet knitting? it's yeah. just
1: i put i knit hearts all around it so well, i'll wear go. it a few times before i start using it for for poop shitting f- in for shitting it yeah
0: and that's it for voicemails this week. And you, you can, uh, if you want to, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. And if your call stands out, you might hear it on the show.
1: Yay! Call us.
0: Call, call. us. Call. Give us a call.
1: Sounds crazy. Call we'll do me. a coffee.
0: We'll have a cup of coffee and a waffle. <laughs> a waffle. Well, and a coffee. It just reminds me of my friend Andrew, who went to the University of. Uh, Prince Edward Island. Fancy. <laughs> but uh, they used to, I don't know why, but he always uh, laughed about the janitor there. And he used to say, hey, boys, come on and We'll have a cup of coffee and a wobble. <laughs> a wobble. <laughs> he couldn't pronounce waffle for somehow, Aww. for some reason. Or maybe
1: he just like saying wobble over waffle.
0: A cup of coffee and a wobble. A
1: cup of coffee and a wobble.
0: Yeah. Andrew got in trouble for stealing the bar lights off a police car one time. Andrew. I know naughty. Naughty.
1: Did he give it back?
0: Obviously, he had to give it back if he got found in trouble him. for it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, he put it on his own car.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think that's how it went. No,
1: they bought the yeah. car like
0: this. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on to Patreon for Pa-tre- some for some oh. shouts out. Yeah. For some shouts out, it's time for those Patreon shouts out. Shouts oh. outs. The shouts outs. Okay. So, first up, as far as patrons go, from Dominion, Nova Scotia. Oh. Which is, is a place that? I don't know.
1: Wait, what?
0: I know. I don't know where Dominion, Nova Scotia is. I'm going to have to look it up.
1: I'm sure it's about an hour and a half from Halifax. Seems like everything's an hour and a half from Halifax.
0: Everything is kind of uh, very close to uh, Halifax. Dominion is way the heck up by Glace Bay in Cape Breton. That is far more than an hour and a half from Halifax. Okay,
1: I stand corrected. It's about
0: three hours maybe or more.
1: Is it remote?
0: It is more remote remote than Halifax.
1: He gets there by Aquabus?
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so Steve Dave McGregor is from Dominion and... uh, what does Steve Greg McGregor do there in Dominion, Nova Scotia?
1: He's an online dating ghostwriter.
0: Oh, so he writes people's profiles exactly. for online dating. Exactly.
1: Now keeping it safe though, because the pandemic. Yeah. He's kind of got to alter his writing now f- to make it a little more Zoom friendly. Okay. So people meet that way. So
0: M not ugly <laughs> is, is probably the, his Cyrano de M Butis. R- M <laughs> Mexcemophy.
1: Hey, he makes big bucks doing that and he's got so many people to help. He's got like a backlog of uh profiles to write.
0: I don't have a backlog of those. Profiles? None. None. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Steve Dave McGregor. Steve Dave McGregor. Which the mailing address is for a different person, but I'm not maybe right he wants on. to remain anonymous, so. Did you
1: get that right on Steve Dave McGregor? He's a writer, <laughs> a ghostwriter. Oh,
0: Carol, you're terrible. Right. <laughs> Next we have from Mankato, or Mankato, I don't know how that's pronounced, Minnesota, in uh, in the United States of America, Hannah Radcliffe. What does Hannah do there in the U.S. and A?
1: She is a hypotherapist.
0: A hypotherapist?
1: Hippotherapist. Oh,
0: she's like, like hippopotamuses? Nope.
1: That's what some people think, but it's Latin for horse. Hippo is Latin for horse. Oh. So using horses um, as a form of therapy for people with disabilities.
0: Wow. That's kind of cool.
1: It's good for everybody.
0: (laughs) So what kind of therapy do you do with a horse? I don't understand.
1: They ride horses because it helps patients develop better balance, coordination, and muscle tone while improving confidence and becoming more independent.
0: Wow, that's kind of cool.
1: That is a cool job.
0: Yep. Yeah. It definitely is. Uh, Hippotherapy.
1: I'm a little afraid of horses. Okay.
0: Well, because they're big, and they're unpredictable. They're skittish.
1: I guess some of them are. Yeah. But I love horses. They're soft noses.
0: I don't dislike them. Just like a little scary to me.
1: They could be, I guess. The real wild ones, like at the rodeos with the bucking broncos. Yeah, they're a little nervous. You wouldn't put, she wouldn't use those for um, the therapy. therapy. (laughs) Bucking bronco, that's a whole different job.
0: Just this crazy horse for um, yeah, bucking bronco. She
1: uses the old ones called Daisy.
0: (laughs) Daisy? Yeah. The Swaybacks? Yeah. All right. The friendly ones.
1: Feed apple.
0: Next up, we have somebody who goes only by June. I guess they're like Cher and Madonna.
1: So famous. So famous.
0: June. And we don't know where June is from, so let's get our thinking cap on. I'm
1: thinking, thinking.
0: Yep. Where is June from?
1: Nagua, Dominican Republic.
0: She's from the Dominican Republic. Yes, June. Oh, Nagua.
1: From DR, Dominican Republic.
0: Okay. And uh, what does she do there? It goes without
1: saying, she's very famous, June. Mm -hmm. She's a body painter.
0: Oh, really? Yes. Does she have anything to do with the agriculture of the area, which is principally rice, coconuts, and cocoa beans?
1: (laughs) Yes, she paints with cocoa beans.
0: Well, that's fantastic. How did I know this? And other paint as well. Wow, I'm, I'm amazing. Other
1: colors as well.
0: So June is a body painter?
1: yes. And she does uh, work for, well, she does it for parties. Yep. So because she's a celebrity, she hosts many celebrity parties with her body painting. Also, she does the um, painting for ads.
0: Painting for ads. Mm-hmm.
1: And okay. then, of course, fine art, because she's June, body painter.
0: Fine art, which you could shorten to fart if you wanted to.
1: <laughs> if you wanted to, but June doesn't. No. No. Definitely or Maybe she not. does. She could be fun. She could be a fun celebrity. She first. could be fun. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you, June. Famous June, June, the body painter from Nagua in- uh,
1: Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic. DR, beaches all day.
0: Just so you know, it's located north of the Samana Peninsula.
1: Wow, you know a lot about this place. And it
0: lies on uh, the highway leading from Puerto Plata.
1: (laughs) Puerto Plata?
0: Yeah, exactly. Also nice. Yeah. Dreamy. Most of the town is below sea level.
1: Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it'd be so easy to run there.
0: Yeah. Yep. Exactly.
1: Below sea level.
0: Next up, we have another person from another weird place. Where is it? This is Elda Williston. And Elda looks like she is from Nizini Chir, which is in the Russian Federation. Russia? Yes, Russia. She is good in Russia. I don't know anything about this place in Russia because...
1: Is it very small? Is it very cold?
0: I bet it is very cold.
1: I think it's cold in there. In <laughs> How do you even say that? <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> okay, so what does uh what does Elda Williston do in Nijni Chir?
1: She's a professional bridesmaid.
0: Oh. Well, I know. What?
1: Exactly. So is
0: this for brides who have no friends?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> well I guess. Yeah. They just want to beef up their wedding photos a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's it.
1: Um, but if someone calls in sick or can't make it,
0: there you go. Um,
1: then they call in Elda and then she comes in. She has all her own dresses too.
0: Yeah, but it has to match.
1: I know. That is such a huge.
0: So she's got, I just pictured her closet being a rainbow of, exactly. of uh, bridesmaid dresses. Yeah, she
1: also rents them out for weddings too. Well, good I know she's she's got multiple streams of income wow professional bridesmaid she's also beautiful so but so that she always looks very flattering in the photos next to the bride she knows how to pose those kind of things
0: wow that's always
1: a bridesmaid is the name of her company
0: well that's fantastic mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: it probably is the name of somebody's company so it's not necessarily Elda's name we made that up.
1: It could be, but hey, Always a Bridesmaid, that's a great name. Good for you, if that's your business.
0: Yeah, I guarantee that's gone.
1: Oh, well, (laughs) we should look it up, alwaysabridesmaid.com.
0: Next up, we have another celebrity.
1: (gasps) Another one?
0: Her name is Pam. Pam? Yep, Pam.
1: And where's Pam from?
0: Well, let's find out. It looks like Pam is from Briosco in Italy. Riosco oh, in Italy. Fancy. She's from Italy. Italy. Oh, mummy! Oh, mia. pizza! And that's northern Italy. Oh, yeah. It's about thirty kilometers north of Milan. Just so oh, you know. There yeah, you go. Yeah.
1: Very near the uh, fashion capital. Milan. Exactly.
0: Yep. Yep. It's in. Uh, it's. Uh, yeah. Very close. Very. Is cool. it? Very, very far north. <laughs> the coat of arms is like a castle and. Oh wow! A little crown over there and. All that kind of stuff. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. Look at that. Yeah.
0: What does Pam do in Briosco, Italy?
1: Pam is an online sensation. She is a video game tester, also YouTube influencer. Wow. I know. Wow. I know. She tests all the fun games, all like, the Italian games, all the cute games.
0: There's cute Italian games? I didn't know.
1: I'm pretty sure there are.
0: What? Do you make pizza in them? And uh, Yes. Look at me. I'm culturally <laughs>
1: <You're just> devoid <laughs> like, of anything. They only make pizza in Italy? Pasta.
0: Well, pasta, yeah.
1: And cheese shredding games. Parmigiana. Sh-
0: Parmig- mozzarella. Mm-hmm. mozzarella.
1: Oh, yes. Exactly. A gabagool. Like the s- sopranos. <laughs> I know. Everything we know about Italy, we learn from the Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But Pam, and she also does, uh, she tests games for soccer. Yeah. What's that soccer game? You know. FIFA. Yes, that's yeah. it. World Cup soccer video game tester. There you go. There you go. Viva la football.
0: Viva la football. And another patron this week is our friend.
1: Oh, Juliana. Juliana
0: Ambrosini. Nice. That's a very Italian name as well. That is is too. Yeah. I might be wrong, but it sounds pretty darn Italian to me. I think so. And uh, Juliana and I joke about going for donuts together someday. We've gone for tea.
1: Yes. Remember we went, was it Neverland?
0: I can't remember exactly where so. we went. It was on Broadway, wasn't it? Or Fourth, one of those. I think it was on Fourth. Yeah. But yeah, she came out with so us for a, a dark team meetup for tea one day. Yes. And we've been friends ever since because exactly. she's pretty cool. Yeah. And she's
1: on the uh, Zoom chats. Every once in a while, we do like a craft noon. Yep. That's and where I saw her last.
0: There you go. That's very nice. Thank you, Juliana. What does Juliana do over there in New West?
1: Uh well, you'll be surprised to know that she is a water slide tester.
0: What she tests water slides. So I she know. goes out to Cultus Lake just to exactly. make sure that everything is above board and that uh yeah.
1: She has to review them all.
0: Does she go down feet first or head first or it, both?
1: Oh. Oh wow. You, you have to test in several ways.
0: I wanna go bum first.
1: <laughs> Backwards? Whoa.
0: Yeah, exactly. Oh
1: no. Upside down? Whoa.
0: I remember going down the slides there at Cultus Lake one time and Coming off the slide as I was going over
1: that one was the hill. really steep.
0: Yeah, and you actually leave the slide. Your at bum one point leaves the slide. Yeah, it is it's like Holy shit! I am <laughs> actually free falling. It was not. It was not a pleasant feeling.
1: No, I'm gonna die. I didn't die. Yay!
0: Yeah. So that's what she does. So that's yeah. what Juliana does. I kind of was curious about that because mm-hmm. she's you know. Always was talking about food and stuff, and, and I thought maybe She's it very had athletic. something food-related. She's super athletic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought she was just a foodie and was going to be an influencer or something like that. Or...
1: Nope. mm No? Waterslide test shirts for science.
0: For science. Yes. Well, there you go. Science is a good thing. It it's is. A...
1: Helping us out.
0: Helping us out, because- Someone needs to test those darn water slides.
1: They're not open to the public right now just because of COVID. Well. When they reopen, these slides are going to be better than ever.
0: I don't know about that.
1: Yeah, they are. (laughs) Juliana tested them.
0: Oh, right. Because she's been testing them. Exactly. Of Of course.
1: Exactly. Thank you for your service. Your water slide service. Thank
0: you for your water slide service. So let's go on to donut money. Donuts. First up, we have our friend, Irene Bian is back again.
1: Irene, come on, Irene. For a hot beverage
0: and a box of donuts, donut and little coffee. So.
1: Thank you, Irene.
0: Thank you, Irene. Uh, Irene, she's changed jobs, Carol, and Mm. I I know she has also moved. She is now living in uh, in Acklington in the United Kingdom. Oh. So so she's moved from uh, wherever she was before. And, uh, it sounds like she has also changed jobs. So what is she doing now, Carol? She
1: is an ocularist.
0: What is an ocularist? Does it some, has something to do with the eyes? It does. Yep.
1: She's the one that makes, um, those, uh, artificial eyes.
0: So glass eyes? Yes. Oh, that's kind of cool.
1: All different colors, all different sizes, And we spoke.
0: And we also learned last night that Sandy Duncan does not have a glass eye.
1: I know. I'm 50 years old and thought this whole time she had a glass eye. No.
0: It's an urban legend. She actually had a brain tumor that made her blind in one eye. There you go. So they left the eye in place, uh, which is why. Yeah. So she's blind in her left eye.
1: Her eye is fine. Yep. She just can't see out of it. Yep. It's real eye. It's a
0: real eye. Mm -hmm. So there you go.
1: You learn something new every day and every time you watch The Muppet Show.
0: Exactly. Well, which is now on Disney Plus. But thank you. Irene Brand, you are always uh, awesome. It's Thank such you. such a nice feeling to see a little I love.
1: Know. A frequent flyer. Thank you.
0: Next up, we have Janet Beldman, and Janet is from. Let me see. Oh boy, she is from Salton City. In Salton the United City? States. Salton, is that in California? Salton City. It is. It's in oh. Imperial County. It's close to the Salton Sea.
1: Lucky duck. Right? Oh, man.
0: Yep. Uh, it sounds like a, a fun place to live. So what on earth does Janet Beldman do in Salton City?
1: She's a robotics engineer.
0: Wow. She builds robots. Well, what, did, what are the robots used for?
1: Anything you need. They're, they could be the robots that go and dismantle bombs. They could be the robots that are going out to Mars. Yep. There's so many uses for robots. The ones that they really need to invent that uh, automatically clean your bathroom. When are you going to have the bathroom cleaning robots? Why Jenny, you, can you get cracking on that? Why do you want a
0: bathroom cleaning robot? I really robot? want
1: the tub to be scrubbed by a robot. I feel like my arms aren't strong enough.
0: Your arms aren't strong enough?
1: I just can't get the tub clean enough. <laughs> I still try though. Yes, you do. I'd give it a scrub.
0: I could I, I could probably bleach. do it too.
1: Yeah. You could. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I'm on a bathroom cleaning kick at the moment.
0: Well, I am I'm grateful for that.
1: So it would be nice. I have heard of things of uh, a self cleaning bathroom. That technically would be the whole bathroom would be a robot. Wow. Wouldn't that be amazing?
0: It would be amazing. And
1: it'd be sanitized. So good.
0: Well, thank you so much, Janet Beldman, for your donut money donation. We really appreciate that.
1: Exactly.
0: And That's thank you. It's a lot you. of donuts. It is a lot of donuts. Thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkproteenpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpatine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Patina a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And we do have a promo this week.
1: Yeah, We do? Oh, I want to hear it.
0: You definitely do want to hear it because it is a gooder. It's from my good friend, Jamie, from Murderish. Oh. The podcast Jamie, okay. Murderish. Yeah. So you can find that at murderish.com. You can find her on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. And obviously on Facebook, just look at Murderish. And let's listen to Jamie's promo.
1: I'm ready, Jamie. Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened, and I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish, as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app, hit subscribe, and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're (laughs) murder-ish.
0: Thanks, Jamie. Uh, oh my
1: god, Jamie, that happened? Yeah, it did.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah, she uh, she told her story just a bit after I told mine in my episode 10. Uh, our podcast have both been around for about the same amount of time. Nice. And I've met Jamie twice at CrimeCon.
1: There you go. Yeah.
0: So All right. She listen. is a good buddy of the show, so please give Jamie a listen.
1: I'm listening. There I you go. Follow and subscribe.
0: And that's it for this week. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple.
1: Have a good one.
0: Bye, everybody. See ya.